Hello, you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX Canberra Community Radio. I'm Tom Street. Today, you'll be hearing from two Hobart-based researchers. We'll be hearing from Zana Chase, Associate Professor of Chemical Oceanography at the University of Tasmania. She'll be talking about some of the research she's involved in in understanding the interaction between ocean chemistry, atmospheric carbon and the Earth's climate. First up, though, I'll be talking to Jamie Kirkpatrick, Distinguished Professor of Geography and Spatial Sciences at the University of Tasmania. We discussed, among other things, causes for the size and severity of the fires we are facing this summer, how to protect your house and property from fire, and best practice fire management for our woodland areas. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me. Oh, pleasure. Yes. With these recent fires that are devastating Australia, some People are putting the blame on um, change in logging regimes, an increase in firebugs, and a lack of backburning. And they're saying that that's saying that it's not due to climate change. What do you say to those those claims? Yeah, well, the thing that people are concerned about is loss of property and life, uh, where fires intersect with human settlements in in catastrophic conditions when the landscape's totally dry and the strong winds. Uh, there's no way of stopping a fire, but there's, uh, the, if you have a hazard reduction burning in the landscape, it's just not going to be effective in stopping that fire. Those fires burn through bare paddocks because uh, the dead material and the soil in the paddocks gets blown up and ignites like in a furnace. So in Canberra, it just burned across bare paddocks to get to the suburbs. Right, so backburning won't actually stop the fire. It won't stop a catastrophic fire from moving. Yeah. yeah so. you, you mentioned, though, um, that from the Black Saturday fires, was it that there was a 40% reduction in yeah, uh, loss yeah. of houses from yeah, that's right. recent, so recent backburning? It was, it was discussed in our program last, a couple yeah, of weeks no, ago. It's not, it's not so much backburning. It's whether you have a low fuel zone 400 to 500 metres from the houses. It increases the probability of them surviving the Fire will still burn through, but it won't be highly intense. Okay, so you can protect houses through backburning and having cleared close, low fuel zones close, close, close to, to houses. Close to houses, yeah. away from houses, it's totally irrelevant because yeah. the fire will, will leap over water and burn through bare paddocks. Right. Yeah, so it's only really close to houses. If you reduce the fuel close to houses and have the obstacle of, uh, of non-flammable trees to catch sparks, um, because what what the houses burn through usually through ember attack if right. you've got a, i mean if you've got a whole lot of bush right next to your house it'll burn might get burst into flames through ra- radiation you know just uh-huh. through heat but yep. mostly it's ember attack i've seen i saw anglesey burn many decades ago uh-huh. and, and the fire moves through and about 10 or 20 minutes later the houses burst into flames because the embers have got inside them and ignited stuff and they gradually and they gradually go so Keeping fuel low and keeping keeping obstacles around a house, mm. you know that 400 meters, 500 meters. The research that's been done in Canberra mm. is is a really sensible thing to do. But ha- preventing embers getting in the house is mm. the other really sensible thing to do. So you know screens, making sure you haven't got stuff in your gutters, making sure you haven't got flammable stuff around the edge of the house. That increases the probability of the houses surviving. But burning out in the bush or cutting down trees out in the bush is, you know, might be good. Uh, burning out in the bush might be good ecologically in some circumstances, and but cutting down trees is a really stupid thing to do for fire hazard because 
young forests are much more flammable than old forests because they've got a, a fuel ladder from the ground upwards. So it's only directly after they've been clear felled that they're not, uh, they're not particularly flammable. Then they're much more flammable than the old forests where the tops of the trees are separated from the understory and you get a high degree of moistness. Right, so the idea that logging would reduce the flammability of the forest is misguided because it, it will initially, just after the trees are cut down, but yeah. then in the growth stage, it's actually a much more flammable. Much more flammable and you're more yeah. likely to get a crown fire, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, that's right. Because there's, yeah. Yeah, there's a ladder to allow the, yeah, the fire to reach yeah, that canopy. Yeah, that's right, canopy. exactly. Yeah. Okay, and then an, old, an older forest, which has a higher canopy, will burn. And also it's likely to have, I think, plants that are un- not non-flammable underneath it, like in Tasmania, it may have rain forest trees so right. have a rainforest understory as it gets old and and that's much less flammable because there's there's fuel gaps in the ladder and there's also shade and and moistness and and the fuel often breaks down faster when you've got those sort of understories and and what about firebugs well that... firebugs are <clears throat> a reality uh but if we eliminated all firebugs, we're not going to solve this problem because if you look at the cause of most of the fires, and there's been, been you know, tens and twenties and hundreds, but maybe of them, ignitions, they're lightning ignitions. Yeah, and those lightning ignitions, there's only, the only way that we can change those is to change the climate. <laughs> lightning is actually a part of nature. Yeah. In Tasmania, yeah. it's increased a lot, lightning incidents fires has increased a lot our research has shown over the last 30 years because of climate change Uh, but elsewhere in Australia it's always been really prominent it's always been a major cause of bushfires and in northern Australia there's a lightning season you know every year there's a a season in which lightning is every day you know and and my understanding is that these fires are just not going out and that so and it would never seen the extent of fires as they are now, that they're just no, burning from one side of the national park right through, well, all through the bushland, yeah, from one side to the other, <clears> and, yeah. and it's burning down into rainforest gullies and on southern sides of hills that don't usually burn, but That's because right, of this extreme it's dryness, extreme dry, the driest yeah. year on, driest, driest year on record, record. and also hottest, the hottest year yeah, on record, record yeah. Yeah. yeah, and. And because there's a, an increase in the pressure gradient from north to south with climate change, yeah. so it makes the winds much stronger as well. So we're getting more extreme winds as well. And wind is one of the major, major drivers of bushfires. So there's an exponential relationship between wind speed and, and, and the rate of movement of fires. Yeah. So, so it's also a windy year. Yeah, it's a, the yeah. wind. One of the changes, climate changes that we're getting, okay. because there's a big, uh, an increase in the pressure gradient from the Australian mainland to south of Australia, with climate change, uh, that, and it's called the Southern Annular Mode, and it's a, just the pressure gradient between the two. The stronger the pressure gradient, the stronger the winds. So, so we're getting getting much stronger extreme winds than we used to get. Right, and, and they make the atmosphere very unstable. And you get an unstable atmosphere, uh, you're more likely to get lightning strikes as opposed to, yeah. So this is what climate scientists have been predicting for Australia for for quite a long time, isn't it? Yeah, for decades. Yeah, Yeah. more extreme drought, extreme heat and extreme wind days. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can't do anything about ignition. We can cut down the 
you know, the number of arsonists, and that has in fact been done in a lot of jurisdictions. I get locked up the day before the fire, fire yeah. weather. Um, but you're still going to have ignition. You're still going to have ignition. Even if we manage like, to stop every single yeah, silly and, human. Yeah, and if you can't stop it because it, the whole landscape's dry, then, you know, it's, the only real solutions are not to trash our national parks by logging them and, and burning the shit out of them. The only, only thing to do is to protect our property by having reduced fuel zones and looking after our property so it's not not burnable. So that's what individuals can do is have reduced fuel zones around their houses and yeah, stop yeah. embers from entering. Yeah, yeah, and have nice green green stuff around their houses rather right. than highly flammable stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like like dried out gum trees. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, maybe some plants, some deciduous, nice European deciduous trees and or nice Australian rainforest trees right. around the yeah. <laughs> have a lovely lawn <laughs> if the if the water restrictions aren't too severe yeah <laughs> but yeah yeah so you can have non-burnable stuff around the house and that actually screens out the sparks right but okay. you just don't want any dry fuel or anything especially dry fuel under eucalypts yeah yeah or, yeah you don't want that close to a house yeah and you have a strong interest in uh maximizing or maintaining biodiversity yeah. in our natural areas. Yeah. And how do you think we should be managing for that going forward with climate change? It's very contingent on vegetation types and situations, but my research is, and other, other people's research has indicated that we haven't been doing enough burning of some of the drier communities like heath and dry eucalypt forests that, the, that we need more burning of that for ecological health. But we need that burning to be variable, not just imposed overall. The Victorian government decided they're going to burn five percent of their um, their bush at one stage, and the only way that the agencies could do that was just burn the shit out of the Mallee, which didn't do it any good at all, and didn't solve any problem. As as opposed in Tasmania, where the burning that's done is concentrated near assets, and it's much smaller, but it it's around where houses are and, and other assets. Or and is it a different ecosystem type? Yeah, there's different eco- the same ecosystem so, types in Victoria as in Tasmania for a large so part. Are the Mallee, Mallee ecosystems not adapted to burn, or why, why are we saying it doesn't do it any good? Oh, well, a lot of the Mallee ecosystems had a lot of colitis pine in them. If you burn them too frequently, you get rid of some of the elements of the Mallee ecosystem. Okay. Yeah, because as you go towards the desert, you get... Fi- in the desert areas, you get fires in wet years. Because there's fuel connects in, in, in Tasmania and, and, and wetter parts of Victoria and New South Wales, you get fires in dry years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it sort of reverses. Yeah. So you need to apply a, a good understanding of, of what each ecosystem you're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, but for you're... instance, our coastal heats mm. in Tasmania are turning into scrub because they're not burnt frequently uh, frequently enough and we're losing elements of biodiversity because of that and in a lot of places in eastern australia you just get scrub replacing you know species rich native grasslands that supported a lot of uh, native uh, native animal species with uh, the reduced of, burning with reduced burning okay yeah yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, are you talking about the coastal ranges of, say, southern New South Wales? Yeah. Well, if just you can go go from farmland where it's grazed and burnt and native pastures into 
Kosciuszko National Park says, and you go into a wall of tea trees as you cross the boundary. Right. Yeah, and that happens in Victoria as well. Yeah, so it's not good ecologically, but whether it's burned or not doesn't really affect the whether houses will burn down. It does affect the, the nature that the reserves are. Unless it's immediately adjacent to the houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes, yeah, but yeah. you're saying the fire is going to pass through that landscape no matter what you do. Yeah, it doesn't really matter whether it's lovely native grassland under scattered umbrageous trees or whether it's a whether it's a tea tree scrub with an occasional unhealthy tree poking through it, it's still going to burn through it. You're, you're talking about under extreme drought conditions like we're Yeah, under now. extreme conditions, under, you know, like under under moderate fire danger or low fire danger conditions. Difference in fuel will slow down a fire and, or even stop it. Um, but they're not the conditions we really worry about. What the conditions mm. we're worried about are the extreme and catastrophic conditions, Yeah. What does that mean for biodiversity? If we're, I th- my understanding was that you would burn in winter in in little isolated areas, so you have a patchwork landscape of things that have been. This has been burnt <coughs> last year. This was yeah, burnt the year before. Yeah. This was burnt maybe yeah. ten years ago, yeah. and and then that would stop the extreme fires in summer from going right through the landscape because the stuff that had been more burnt more recently would then not burn Just in the, the extreme fires, summer the fires, fire. Yeah. Fires will burn through stuff that's been burnt last year if it's extreme or catastrophic conditions and will just burn through it. Is that, has that, has that always been the case or is that a, the, the situation that we're now facing no, well, it, in a warmer It's always world? the case in extreme and catastrophic conditions okay. because of climate change, the extreme and catastrophic conditions are much more frequent. Right. And they're extending right back into spring, back in, into autumn. So they're a longer fire season where you can get those conditions. That's the product of climate change, yeah. So if we're going to have those more extreme events more regularly, will the patch burning, what effect is that going to have? Is that, is that well, going to reduce the impact of those fires for biodiversity? Yeah, well, we've got, we've got some really major biodiversity management problems uh, as a result of this climate change effect because we're going to get these much more extensive fires and much more frequently. Yeah. And that's going to have potential really bad effects on some of our threatened species and and some of our vegetation types. So you mean it's going to lead to a lot of extinctions? Well, it could, yeah. 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 I mean, we, we'll have to work hard to maintain species in this in this new world or, or reverse the new world by doing something, which yep. our politicians right around the world seem very reluctant to do for the most We're part. We're reducing carbon emissions and methane emissions. Well, yeah, reversing it. Yeah. yeah, but even reversing it, it's going to take a while for the, the climate to reverse because, you know, like there's a, a big lag effect of all these things. Yeah. Right. Take, take a while to draw down carbon if we started... Yeah, if we, can, if, we, if we've got any... If we can devise a method for drawing down carbon and reversing... Because we haven't had any... It's actually still increasing at an increasing rate, the carbon content of the atmosphere. Yeah, the last the last last graph I saw it was increasing at an increasing rate. So everything everyone's doing with these international treaties has been totally ineffectual. Mm. Well, it might have been increasing at a greater rate, I suppose. But right. Well, <laughs> but it's not solving the problem. Hopefully, hopefully that's going to turn around. Um, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Um, so you you were saying when we were chatting before that. Uh, while we're seeing extreme dry 
years mm. more mm. frequently, we're also likely to see extreme wet years. So this might be followed by flooding across yeah, Australia, yeah. possibly next year. Yeah, it tends wet. to be, with climate change, at least in southeastern <clears throat> Australia, we're getting greater extremities of climate. So, okay. so you know, Australia's always been a place of fire, flood and drought. Yeah, but but the, the floods are getting more extreme, oh, yeah. droughts are getting more extreme. So already extreme fires, climate is becoming even more variable. Even more variable and extreme, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's... So that's... Yeah, like it's just as likely that next year there'll be massive floods that'll sweep away all the bare ground. So that has happened before. So people in Canberra, they're wondering if they should buy air filters for next year's bushfire season... Maybe they should be worrying about floods or... Yeah, buying some rubber boats. Rubber boats, <laughs> yeah. One shouldn't laugh. But I mean. Okay, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. So, so yes, we're going to... I think our planning's got to change too. I think we need to get houses out of the bush right. and out of the floodplains. Yep. Yeah, and, and basically... Get ready for these extreme events. Yeah, yeah. so we need to live where, where we're not exposed to these extreme events. You know, and not just assume that they're one in 200-year events or one in 400-year events because that doesn't pertain anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and what, what else should we be thinking about in light of climate change? I'd say that we should be thinking about using less and enjoying it more. Right. <laughs> it's part of the solution to climate uh-huh. change. Yeah. You, like using less resources and, yeah, and having less impact like, on the planet. Yeah, yeah, and enjoying what we do use more because if you think of what people really enjoy in life, it's usually being with family and friends, doing something that doesn't involve consuming, consuming the planet. So we could have much more enjoyable lives and use much less. Um, and have a win-win solution You're on the way to win-win solution. I mean, a large proportion of the, of the, of the gases that go into the atmosphere from, from the fact that we kill and eat a lot of animals on this planet. That's somewhere between 17 and 51% of the greenhouse gases come from people being carnivores. Right, it's easy, 17 it, to 51%. Yeah, that's a sort of a range. From you know. methane, which is... Methane. Methane emissions and, and from cows conver- fighting. And conversion of, conversion of forests into pasture. And, oh, okay. Yeah, and so the, whole, the whole shebang. The, re- the carbon release that was trapped yeah. in the, the wood of that forest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a slow release thing too because the soil carbon... Is reduced release, over release, time. It releases over hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah, when you change the biomass at the surface. Right, yeah, you have less so, biomass. So it's, yeah. so it's up individual people can use less, enjoy it more and and enjoy the delights of a, a plant-based diet or a less animal-based diet and do mm. something about it. It's not, not just up to the politicians. Yeah. You're listening to 2XX, Canberra Community Radio. We're going to take a quick break from this interview with Jamie Kirkpatrick to listen to the song Chan Chan from Company Segundo.
para Marcané, llego a Puerto, voy para Mayarín. De Alto Cedro voy para Marcané, llego a Puerto, voy para Mayarín. De Alto Cedro voy para Marcané, llego a Puerto, voy para Mayarín. Se me sale la pavita, yo no lo puedo evitar. Cuando Juanica y Chan Chan en el mar cernían arena, como sacudí el jibe, a Chan Chan le daba pena. Limpia el camino de pajas que yo me quiero sentar en aquel tronco que veo y así no puedo llegar De Alto Cedro voy para Marcané Y llego a Cueto voy para Mayarín Ataque con vaya, ataque de frente De Alto Cedro voy para Marcané Y llego a Cueto voy para Mayarín Y alto cedro voy para Marcané, llego a Cueto, voy para Mayarí. Y alto cedro voy para Marcané, llego a Cueto, voy para Mayarí. You're listening to 2XX, Canberra Community Radio, and this is the Fuzzy Logic Show for your science on a Sunday. I'm Tom Strait. Uh, I'm here, well, I've been talking to Jamie Kirkpatrick, 
Distinguished Professor in Geography and Spatial Sciences from the University of Tasmania. And we've been discussing this summer's devastating fires and their relationship to climate change and also best practice management for our forested areas. We've also been discussing what individuals can do about their personal contributions to climate change. And Jamie raised that meat eating is um, a surprisingly important part of the picture in terms of greenhouse gas emissions from both methane from cows, from their digestive system, and also from land clearing for pastoralism. And I'm just about to raise with him um, what he thinks of the possibility of changing our grazing practices in Australia to perhaps have a bit more of an Aboriginal-based regime with more forestry and incorporating fire into that and changing from grazing cows to kangaroos for meat. And kangaroos are quite special in that their digestive system doesn't produce methane as do cows. So increasing the, the carbon storage of the land through changed um, management and also changing the animals so you're just in methane output. Um, so here we are, back to the interview. In Australia, if we were doing it, having a regular fire burning of a lot of our forests and perhaps revegetated a lot of the area that had been cleared for grazing but had, you know, the open understory that the Aboriginals maintained, yeah. like they were trying to maximise grazing and then yeah. harvested wild gurus instead of beef. Yeah, I think, that's, uh, I think that we, we sort of, we could look at northern Australia where there's fires every year and they're really low intensity. Mm. So in, in fertile country that would probably work to solve the problem is just having frequent fires. So when the fires do come, even though they'll burn through, mm. they won't do as much damage because they're of lower intensity as a possibility. Yeah. But that's not won't work with our our heathy stuff like Blue Mountains and the stuff around Sydney and stuff like that where where, the, where it's um uh, that'll just destroy that type of vegetation having that frequency of fires. Yeah. So, Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's really, you really have to think about it. You really have to have people researching it and yep. people applying the research in a very contingent manner to solve those problems. There's no magic bullet, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's a typical scientist answer. More research. No, no, no. no. <laughs> we know enough to know what yeah. we can do in a lot of situations now. Okay. Right, okay. We just need to apply it. Apply it. So people yeah. need to listen to the scientists. Yeah, people yeah. need to listen and think about it. And, yeah. and the people that the coalface usually uh, usually do know what okay. the right thing is to do, but uh, right. they're restricted. Like people in the national parks spend their time cleaning toilets and looking after tourists instead of, instead of managing the parks for nature conservation and and fire hazard and so forth, though they do a bit of the fire hazard stuff because they're forced into that. So just being a bit focused on actually keeping all the biodiversity that we have on the planet and trying to reverse the, uh, the, the climate changes which are leading us into quite disastrous situations, really. Is there any of your research that you'd like to talk about in particular? Um... Yeah, well, the only research that we, I mean, what we're really concentrating on, at the, that I'm really concentrating on at the moment, is the danger to the ancient rainforests and alpine vegetation in Tasmania, which isn't adapted at all to fire. So yeah, that'll just kill it. A fire gets yeah, into a lot of... Just one fire knocks yeah. it off. And we're um, talking about 
trees sometimes are thousands of thousands years old. of years old yeah. trees yeah and and, Re- and really beautiful stuff right yeah, like those, yeah, those yeah, alpine yeah. or subal- yeah. subalpine yeah, environments in tasmania glorious, are, just glorious yeah so, so the so the basic problem is is how to stop those remaining areas of that that stuff that's been around since the cretaceous it's really ancient and um, Cretaceous, the, how many millions of years ago? Oh, that's I think it's 60 million or something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Ancient, I'm, I'm ancient ecosystems. Yeah. They're very ancient. Um, uh, stopping those being incinerated, keeping them on the planet is really important. That involves, you know, strategic treatment of fire. So I've been arguing very strongly that Australia needs to set up remote area firefighting capabilities and have it and well with you know sort of helicopter access and then putting out the fires remotely we have groups that do it but we've only got very small groups that do it now and the need for that's going to become more extreme both here and in places like the border ranges and up in the queensland rainforests and so forth right yeah yeah to try and create a, a ring around well basically when the lightning of... strikes happen you, yep. you figure out which ones are likely to threaten the remaining forests and you get straight in there and and deal with them you know so that because you've only got a very limited window of opportunity once the fire takes off then it's there's nothing light. you can do about it but yeah. when, when it's just started you can you can do something some most of the time you can do something about it yeah yeah so get out there with the, the water bombers and dropping people out of helicopters and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and bringing in reservoirs and pumps to get the water up there and, you know, just... You've got a... Water bombers uh, are great for subduing flames, but yep. they don't stop it. Right. Yeah, you have to have, have to have crews on the ground. Yeah. So, you know, like if you're bombing with water and you're just bombing with water, yeah, the fire will come back because it's burning underneath logs and stuff and it'll just... Burn, and, and the weather's really dry, so it just comes back again. Uh, so you need to get people there to put out the the little the, the little, little bits that are going to come back again virtually right. immediately. If you haven't got the people there, it's just it's just a display. You know, it's do just they a, walk just around with little backpacks of water? Or how do they do that? Well, do they, they fly they fly in reservoirs, you know, oh, okay. reservoirs and pump water up from there and get it and then then work from that. That's I mean they're really amazing people that do this. Yeah. Thing. And that was Jamie Kirkpatrick, Distinguished Professor in Geography and Spatial Sciences from the University of Tasmania, who was very kind to give me his time in his very busy schedule. Uh, and he actually had to jump up and quickly run off to a lecture, so didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Um, so thanks very much, Jamie, for that. And now we're going to go to the song Volare, from the Gypsy Kings, and I've got a little bit of an obsession from Latin music, that's why the second Spanish song, Volare, actually means I will fly in Spanish. Un 
You're listening to 2XX Canberra Community Radio. I'm Tom Street, and this is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. So having listened to applied scientist Jamie Kirkpatrick in the first part of our show, talking about using our understanding of climate trends to plan for the future, I thought it might be interesting to look at how we develop this understanding by taking a dive into the complexities of the science of one aspect of the climate system, because no scientist can understand the or study the whole climate system of the earth because it's just too complicated. So people specialize in particular areas. Um, so this brings us to our second guest on the show today, Zaina Chase, who's an associate professor in chemical oceanography at the University of Tasmania. Uh, Zaina is interested in understanding how ocean life interacts with chemical cycles in the ocean and the earth's climate. So to give you a bit of background on what we talk about, um, marine life plays a huge role in removing carbon from the Earth's atmosphere. So as microbes photosynthesize in shallow ocean water, so in the upper layers of the ocean where there's sunlight, that's where they photosynthesize. So they sit up there and they might ocean water might look clear, but there's the stuff living in it, little microbes. And as they photosynthesize, they, they take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, just like plants do on land, like trees do. They take up carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide, and they convert this into sugars and fats and proteins to build their bodies. 
And so when they die, just like plants on land, um, well, the plants will fall over, I guess, but the, the microbes in the water will f- often fall down through the ocean to the ocean bottom. And often there's no oxygen at all down there. And that means they don't break down. They don't biodegrade. And so that their bodies, their little bodies just sit there. Um, and the carbon contained in their bodies sits there and it builds up layer by layer and doesn't return to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. And instead it's stored in the sediments at the ocean bottom. And um, over millions of years, you can get a huge accumulation. And this is actually the process that led to the generation of the oil and natural gas deposits that we dig up and burn today. That's actually just microbes from the ocean that have fallen to the bottom and not decomposed and then sat there and got buried and then over with time and pressure changed a little bit. So the carbon is a slightly different form, but still contains a lot of energy that we can now use. Um, so the amount of life at the ocean surface, surface determines how much carbon is taken up and then falls to the ocean bottom. Um, and since the nutrients in, are often a limiting factor in the ocean, there isn't enough nutrients generally in our world's oceans. Um, understanding nutrient cycling in the ocean is really key to understanding this process. And basically, if there's more nutrients, then you have more things growing and more carbon taken to the ocean bottom and taken out of the atmosphere. So more nutrients, more removal of carbon from the atmosphere is the basic idea. Um, okay, so I hope that helps. So here's Zaina. Hey Zaina, thanks very much for your time. Um, could I get you to introduce yourself and a bit sure. about what you do? Yeah, um, my name is Zaina Chase. I'm a um, associate professor of chemical oceanography at um, UTAS. And what's what's chemical oceanography? Chemical oceanography. <laughs> um, well, that means I study uh, chemistry of the oceans. Right. But um, actually, more of what I study is some. A subfield of that called um, biogeochemistry, which is the interactions between sort of the biological cycles and the um, geological and chemical cycles in the on Earth, uh, in particular how that plays out through the oceans. Okay, so you you given me an example before of some work that a student of yours has just been doing. Yeah, so that's kind of a good a good example of yeah. the work that I do. So yeah. I had a student; um, he was actually testing an idea that we had. Um, yeah, so the, the work that he did was looking at the role of these um, what are called nitrogen-fixing bacteria that live in the tropical oceans. And he... So a nitrogen-fixing bacteria is a little microbe that floats around in the ocean and takes nitrogen out of the atmosphere, right? Yes, yes. Just, yeah. yeah, And exactly. then turns it into a form that can be used um, by plants and animals, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Right, because that's that's where nitrogen comes from and it's a key nutrient for life. Yes. And so yeah, where it yeah. comes from initially is is from fi- nitrogen-fixing bacteria which t- have this special chemical process to take it out of the atmosphere. Yeah, that's yeah? right. So you might yeah. know about them um, like in on land plants. You've got your legumes, um, yeah. your like lentils and beans. Which have and a stuff. symbiotic relationship with yeah. microbes. It's in, Nitrogen fixing bacteria in the soil. Yeah, exactly. So there's microbes just like that that live in the oceans. Right. Okay. Um, they're called cyanobacteria. 
That's news to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're um, they they tend to like the warmer waters. So they're um, they tend to congregate in kind of your tropical waters. Yeah. Um, but they yeah they do exactly the same thing as your land plants, and they can take nitrogen that's in the air, well that's actually dissolved in seawater, and kind of grab onto it and turn it into useful nitrogen. Um, but they they actually need quite a bit of iron to do that. Um, and so this is an example of how the cycles are all kind of linked together. And the oceans in general are depleted in iron in the surface waters. Yeah, is lots, that, huge that, areas of the ocean. Which are, is a major limitation on photosynthesis. Is that, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So actually some of the other research that I've done that I've been involved in is um, yeah, looking at exactly that. But most of the time, most of the, time um, the big areas of the ocean that are typically thought to be kind of deficient in iron are the polar oceans, especially around Antarctica. It's like a vast area of really, really low iron levels. Um, just because it's so far away from the deserts, which is like a source of iron. Oh, I thought the Antarctic waters were supposed to be very nutrient rich and, and full of life for that reason. Cause it's, uh, yes, well, <laughs> they are, um, they are nutrient rich, but they're micronutrient poor. Right. So the nutrients, we usually think of them as like nitrogen and phosphorus. And so because you have deep water that upwells around Antarctica, uh -huh. you have a lot of these nutrients, um, but the deep waters have really, really little iron in them because the iron has different sort of chemistry to these other nutrients. So the waters come up and they've got like heaps of nutrients, but the phytoplankton at the base of the food chain, um, they really need the iron. And so they kind of have this feast of, of macronutrients, we call them, the nitrogen and phosphorus, but not enough iron. Um, but right around Antarctica, like really close to Antarctica, it's true you have your penguins and your like lush ecosystems, um, but right around Antarctica there tend to be more iron sources, so that's kind of an exception. But if as soon as you move away from really close to the continent, you get into this sort of iron-poor area. Okay, but you were saying you were studying warm tropical yeah, waters. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? yeah. <laughs> so the, this is a new twist. So yeah, normally uh, people focus on these polar regions when we're talking about iron limitation. Um, but uh, my student Pierce was more interested in the tropical regions. And there uh, you don't tend to get the upwelling. So you actually have very little um, macronutrients. So nitrogen tends to be what's limiting those systems. Um, so that's why these nitrogen fixing microbes are so important there. Okay. But it turns out that they, um, they need a lot of iron, <laughs> like more than your typical phytoplankton. They're kind of like iron hogs. Right, okay. Um, so what he did was, um, he was actually using a biogeochemical model. Um, so he did some experiments in his model <laughs> where he added iron to the system, um, just to the tropical ocean. And he found that... Um, out in the in actual ocean? Like, no, no. Out, no, in a, in on a, a computer. Tank, on a computer, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he had a quite a complex ocean model with all the different chemical cycles and different groups of phytoplankton, and he added iron to this okay. computer model. <laughs> and how does the model know what how it's going to react? Um, well, it... he... You have to tell it um, like how much iron these different phytoplankton need. Um, so based on a lot of experiments. Based yeah, other data. people's work. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So he actually he's um, he was a really great student because he has a background in biology. Right. So he was able to kind of comb through the, the biological literature, 
and synthesize a lot of findings from other scientists from actually there's been a lot of work in the past five years and so he basically updated this model that had been used in the past and gave it all this new information from from lots of different scientists work right so it's yeah. He's got all these digital little microbes floating around in the ocean and then he's feeding them more iron and yes. the computer program's predicting what that would What that would do, do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and so he found, surprisingly, that when you take into account all this new research that's been done on these microbes, that they're really important in the carbon cycle. Right. So mostly because um, when, they, um, well, when they grow and proliferate, when you give them iron, they're, they're fixing more nitrogen and that helps the rest of the ecosystem. Okay, because it's bringing that nitrogen in from the atmosphere and fertilizing the ocean. Yeah. With that, and then everything else is growing more. Yeah, exactly. And, and then yeah. that's taking, and when it grows, it's building, the little microbes are building their bodies out of carbon from the atmosphere. Yes. And taking that out. And then I, some, a lot of them are falling to the ocean floor and, yeah, and sequestering getting, carbon. Yes, yes, there. exactly. And yeah. there were other aspects of these guys. They tend to have more carbon per nitrogen than um, other phytoplankton. So for a long time, since the 30s, I think, um, ocean biogeochemists have assumed that the ratio of carbon to nitrogen in um, ocean plants was just fixed or pretty well fixed. But recent research has shown that it can vary quite a bit. Um, yeah. So some plant ocean plants or algae. phytoplankton, phytoplankton yeah. are more carbon rich more, yeah, exactly more nitrogen rich okay yeah so these ones that live in the tropics especially they can really pack on a lot of carbon for not very much um phosphorus or nitrogen so they're, yeah, okay. they're really carbon rich i guess right um plus there's other there were a few other feedbacks that were important like when they um the nitrogen fixing phyto, um, bacteria tend to thrive just above nitrogen deficient zones um, because they're they're kind of favored in these areas that have low nitrogen because they they kind of have a leg up on the other phytoplankton because they have this secret not secret but they have an extra they have access to an extra stash of nitrogen so mm -hmm. but those regions tend to have low oxygen and so they're falling through water that has really low oxygen and that tends to preserve the carbon and let it sink deeper into the ocean so it's like a more efficient way of getting the carbon away from the atmosphere so which areas have low oxygen uh the the kind of the areas of the ocean where these nitrogen fixers are thriving which is the warm tropical the warm tropical waters? but it's particular parts of the warm tropical pacific so are you yeah. guys <laughs> thinking that you could fertilize the ocean with iron potentially there in order to sequester carbon as is this is just in terms of understanding how climate works over geographical timescales exactly yeah okay so how what's happened in the past to sequester carbon yeah. as the earth's transformed over millions of years yes that's, that's you just that's what you're trying to understand. well i mean it has some relevance to the future obviously we want to i mean our overall goal is to understand um all the different parts of the um the Earth's carbon cycle, the natural carbon cycle. Yeah. Like how one thing affects another and effect, eventually affects carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. And that's important yeah. for the future in understanding um, what the trajectory that things will take. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we, you know, we, if we want to know what the climate's going to be like, you know, 
20 years from now. Yeah. Uh, we would use a model kind of like my student used, um, but we would feed it information about how much carbon dioxide we think humans are going to be emitting. I mean, this is what um, goes into these future climate projections. Uh, so we would tell it, you know, we think humans are going to be emitting this amount of CO2, and we would put it into our climate model, and it would do its thing yeah. <laughs> and uh, predict what the what the climate's going to be like in the future. Now, not all of the models include really detailed description of um, the carbon cycle. So do you think that this is how much, do you have any approximation about how much carbon has been drawn out of the atmosphere in the oceans or in any particular area of the ocean? Uh, well, we know right now, like um, over the past 20 years or so, um, yeah, there have been quite a few studies to say that, so of all the carbon that humans have emitted, mm. only about half of it has gone into the atmosphere. Uh, the other half has gone into these natural carbon sinks. So half of that is the ocean. And so the other it, the so has it been sequestered at a greater rate than previously when the, there was less carbon in the atmosphere? Or? Uh, there's some debate about that, whether or not the sinks are increasing or decreasing or staying the same. Because okay, that sounds fantastic to me that half of it <laughs> yeah, has, it's great. has it's... been sequestered, right? Yeah. Where, where, so where do you think it is in, in, in the bodies of little animals that aren't decomposing in oxygen-free zones on the bottom of the ocean, for example? Um, well, no, I think so that the, um, uh, it, I think it's just so far it looks like it's not that the biological processes have increased at all. It's right. just what's called, so in the ocean, the carbon, the carbon that gets into the surface ocean can get into the deep ocean through biological means or more sort of physical means. Well, and, <laughs> I, I thought a huge proportion was just dissolved yeah, so that's, in ocean water. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So that's what I would call physical or chemical. It has nothing to do with the biology. Right. Okay. Yeah. And there's a, and that's making, that's what's making the oceans more acidic, which is a major problem in yes. itself. It's not heating the planet, but it's causing ocean acidification. Yeah. So it's helping yeah. to, remove the carbon from the atmosphere, but unfortunately uh -huh. it's um, instead of causing other oceans. problems. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's, there's only so much that can be dissolved in the ocean as well. Right. So, yeah. Over long time periods, yeah. there's like an upper limit, but, but yeah, but okay. But we're talking, <laughs> the ocean rotates over what hundreds but, of thousands or millions uh, of years. Well, it takes about a thousand years to thousand kind of years. do the whole okay. cycle. Right. So yeah. we're, we're not, so that water, that, that carbon that's been, taken down to the deep ocean, we're not going to know anything about it in terms of the atmosphere for another thousand years. Potentially. Yeah, we're probably pretty safe for, um, for But that means we're, we're going to live with the consequences of what we've already done in the Ultimately, future yeah. for a long periods. Like no we couldn't what. keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. there's, um, but these biological processes might change in the future. Like so far, there's not too, there's not really any evidence that they've changed yet. Um, but right now um but this this nitrogen fixing story that i've told you <laughs> might kick in in the future it could change like if we start getting more iron in the oceans um maybe that will increase the uptake of carbon through biological processes and we, we just don't know whether that's going to happen or not right what, why might we get more iron in the ocean um well if um it could just be sort of industrial pollution, that sort of human activity releases a lot of iron um, okay. just through, yeah, kind of factories and that sort of thing, industrial iron. 
Um, or just, they could just be... rusting and getting broken down and washed into the sea via rivers and yeah, or uh, out of smokestacks smoke or, or okay highways or cars. Yeah, the coal burning you know produces particulate iron that can get into the ocean. And but we, when when you yeah. say it's going to cause a carbon drawdown potentially, you're talking over quite long time periods, thousands of years. Or... Um, no, not necessarily. These yeah. biological processes happen really quickly. So okay. if you had um, I mean, if you had a lot more iron, it would be actually an almost immediate response. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to take a long time. Right. But, I mean, people had been experimenting with iron, ocean iron fertilization as a means of combating Yeah, like climate a geoengineering. Change. And the last I heard about it, which is some years ago, that I think they decided that it was impractical was... Or, quite difficult way yeah. of, of making a significant enough impact on, on the atmospheric carbon levels to be worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's probably still the feeling. But yeah. um, but it's what you... It might happen um, just naturally. Okay. <laughs> yeah, or, I mean, maybe the opposite will happen um, and we'll have less iron getting into the ocean. So if we look back in the past, which is another thing that I've studied at, like, the last ice age... Uh, it's clear that there was um, maybe 10 times more iron getting into the oceans at that time compared to pre-industrial times. Okay. Just because of um, the fact that it was colder and drier, and so you had an expansion of deserts, and so the natural iron sources were um, larger at that time. Right, because you've got deserts, um, like when you get a dust storm in Australia off the desert, you get all this dust blown up into the atmosphere and, and sometimes that will land on glaciers in New Zealand it's always getting blown out into the Pacific and, yeah and that's iron iron rich dust. I mean I yeah. guess Australia has a lot of iron in the soil so yeah is is Australian dust particularly iron rich dust compared to say the Sahara um or... it's not, I'm not sure if it has more iron um it might have because that's, what, that's what makes the, that's what makes the center of Australia red. Yeah, right? so there's it's a lot of dust coming from from Australia. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's not iron rich dust from the you know, is, the iron enriched. I don't know if it's more iron rich than okay. your other typical soils, but it's okay. it's definitely iron rich. And it um, another thing that's important for the iron is how um, what happens when it lands in the ocean. Like, does it how much of it actually dissolves because the the um, ocean life. We can't really use like a big chunk of iron and right. use it to kind of dissolve into the seawater. So a big chunk might just sink might just to the bottom sink, slowly, yeah. right? And not um, give any of the goodies out to the seawater. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a matter of ongoing research, is it? Yeah. yeah in fact, that's another um, project that I'm working on now is looking at the modern, um, what impact dust has on the modern ocean, um, okay. natural dust. Um, and in fact, we're really interested in the bushfires. And whether, because that's another potential, I mean, it's just so obvious from the satellites, you have all this bushfire smoke getting into the right, ocean. Right, there's all this particulate matter, yeah, going, yeah. going carried out and dropped into the ocean. And yeah. so you're going to see if that's causing increases or decreases. Yeah, it might be affecting the, the ocean productivity. Productivity, and, um, okay. A colleague of mine has um, done some work on the iron associated with the bushfire smoke. In fact, he um, collects samples um, just on this building in, at Mount Wellington. And... Um, yeah, they've found that the presence of the of the sort of bushfire particles actually makes the other iron more likely to dissolve. So it's sort of aiding the dissolution of the mineral iron. 
which is really the other iron that's been carried in anyway. Yeah, like you have your dust kind of iron. The, this that's blown up off the desert. Yeah, that's when that... floating around in the air already. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and when it mixes and then it's with mixing the with the smoke iron. in the, in the yeah. air or in the water, and then okay. the chemistry of those particles changes and it makes it more acidic, I guess, and yep. it causes it to more to readily dissolve. dissolve. So it's okay. really interesting. It's very complicated. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so in, when you're talking about um, your student Pierce's research on the warm tropical waters, um, have have you come to any conclusions about w- what's happened in the what's happening and what's happened in the past with the with the iron fertilization? Yeah. So he. Um, so one um, a big a big mystery that we've been working on that everyone's been working on <laughs> for quite a long time is this idea or the when you look at the ice ages it's really obvious that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was was lower than pre-industrial times um, so it was about 120 parts per million lower um, sorry 80 to 100 parts per million lower than sort of pre-industrial climates and um, there's been a a lot of research gone into trying to understand why that was. And so one of the explanations has been this iron fertilization, but mostly of the polar oceans. Okay, unfortunately, we've run out of time for any more of that interview on today's show. That was Zana Chase, a professor from the University of Tasmania in chemical oceanography. And she's been just explaining how it's suspected that increased iron fertilization of the world's oceans may have been responsible for um, the drawdown of carbon and cooling of the Earth's atmosphere during past ice ages. Um, And she's been trying to understand that process among among many other things. So you're listening to 2XX Community Radio, and this has been the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm Tom Street. Catch you next time. Bye. Says I, my dearest Molly, come let us fix the time. When ye and I will married be, and wed luck us come by. When ye and I get married, lovely, happy we will be. For ye are the bonny lassie, let's depart the road we meet. Depart the road we use, a cold one thou's coming on. Besides my aged parents, had not a girl but one. Besides my aged parents, had not a girl but me. So know the bonnie lassie that's the path of road with me. Oh, never mind, call winter love, the spring will follow on. Come sit ye down beside me and I'll sing you a nice song. I'll sing you a nice song while I diddle ye on my knee. But you're the bonnie lassie that's the path of road with me. The lads that I do have, they proved of cruel mind. They beat me on badges, me and proved to be unkind. They beat me on badges, me and guard me through the day. But better get my love to them to part the road away.